The following is a message by Professor Joel Kim from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, please visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Let's pray. Lord, as we turn to you this morning, enlighten our minds and our hearts, that we may honor you as we open up your word. We thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 to 58. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 to 58. Hear now the word of God. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is thy sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I have a confession this morning. I'm a fan of sports, but I'm not a fan of soccer. I don't understand soccer very well, nor do I play it very well. Only every four years or so, when World Cup turns around, do I sit in front of my screen watching soccer from beginning to the end. Well, 2002 was a a very interesting year for us as a Korean-American, watching the World Cup being held in South Korea as well as Japan. Here, Korea, for the first time, actually went into the main round, the round of 16. Two teams we were rooting for, both the U.S. and Korea, and both teams made it to the round of 16. Watching it was a chore, however, because of the time difference. With the summer daylight savings, it's about 16-hour difference between the two countries. When the afternoon match takes place uh, in Korea, here it's about 11 o'clock at night. When the evening match takes place around 8.30 or so, it's 4.30 in the morning. Many nights I stayed up watching all the matches, uh, trying to figure out if I can keep up with what's going on. But when they went to the round of 16, on the same day, U.S. played uh, one of the countries, I think Mexico, and defeated them 2-0, and the match ended right around 1 or 2 o'clock. The Korea-Italy match, a big match, was at 4.30 in the morning. My initial desire was to stay up and try to see if I can actually watch the match. I couldn't. I turned on my VCR, recorded it, and the next morning I got up. Like any other sports fans, I don't want anyone to tell me exactly what the score was. But when I began to watch the match, my hands started sweating. I was too nervous. I'm one of those fans that has to sit right in front of the screen, start yelling into the screen when I see something I don't like. And I started rocking back and forth about 10 minutes into the match. I decided that I could no longer do this. I went up to my dad's room. I said, Dad, what was the score? 
He said, do you really want to know? I said, I really want to know. And he said, Korea won 2-1. The heart that was beating so hard up to that point calmed down. And usually when I watch a rerun of something, something that I already know the result of, I don't like it very much because the excitement is gone. But I must say, this was the only way to prevent my heart attack, heart attack this time. Because now I turned on my TV screen again, started watching the match, and calmly enjoyed the whole process from beginning to the end. Knowing the end, in some sense, affects the way we deal with the present. I wonder if this text does something like that. Because according to Paul, chapter 15 of Corinthians, from the beginning to the end, he defends what happens in the end. And the story that he defends focuses particularly on the issue of the resurrection. He's told us before that when the question was raised, do we need to believe in the resurrection, his simple answer was yes. Christ was resurrected, and without the resurrection, we have no gospel. Then someone went to ask, do we need to believe in our resurrection, that is, our bodily resurrection? He answered, yes, Christ was resurrected. We will not be disembodied souls, but we'll have bodies as Christ resurrected and ascended with his body. Having answered these questions, the questioner, in this case someone we don't know, raises this question on, on verse 35. The person simply asks, but someone may ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? For the remaining part of the chapter, he tries to answer the second half of this question. With what kind of body will they come? Here he points out that it's a different kind of body. I realize we're actually going out of our text that we read this morning, but he tells us that it's a different body. Using the analogy of gardening, he tells us that there's a difference between a seed and a plant. In verse 37, when you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of weed or of something else. Using an analogy of creation, he says different creatures have different fleshes. All flesh is not the same. Verse 39, men have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. Then he goes to the heart of his argument when he points out there's a difference between earthly bodies and heavenly bodies in verses 42 to 44. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead, he says. The body that is sown perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. The difference cannot be more stark. It's a difference between perishable versus the imperishable, dishonor versus glory, weakness versus power, natural versus spiritual. He ends this argument about the difference between the two bodies by drawing upon the analogy of Adam and Jesus. These are the two heads in whom all of us are found, and he points out that this new Adam And the body that this new Adam possesses will be our body as well. Verses 47 through 49. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. And it's this body that we will possess when he says, As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And so here, we see the kind of body that we will possess. 
It's a heavenly body that is in stark comparison to the earthly body that we now possess. But there is a lingering question, and the question is simply this. Is this transformation necessary? We understand the fact that there is reasonableness to arguing that there is a new body that we possess. But the question remains, is this transformation necessary for us to enter heaven? And Paul simply answers, yes, with emphasis. What is perishable, dishonorable, weak, and natural cannot inherit the kingdom of God, he says. In verse 50, he says, I declare to you, brothers, and this is truth that we all must know, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Alluding to the previous section when he described the different fleshes, Paul emphasizes the radical incompatibility between the human present human condition and the resurrected condition of all of us who will be resurrected with Christ. A radical change is necessary. Therefore, a transformed body is absolutely necessary to inherit the kingdom of God. For we come to recognize that heaven is no ordinary earthly place. Heaven is a place for perfection, is no longer characterized by human limitations and frailty, but only perfection, as he says in 53, for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. It's no longer characterized by death, a sign of sin's mastery and dominion on this side of glory, but it's characterized by eternal life, as 1 Corinthians 15, 54 goes on to say, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality that he repeats from verse 53, he goes on to say, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Now you realize that these are actually quotations from Isaiah and Hosea. Without getting into too far into details about these quotations, one thing we can say simply is the first one in the second half of verse 54, when he says simply, death is swallowed up in victory. The quotation is from Isaiah 25, verse 8, where the verse simply says, he will swallow up death forever. There are a number of issues uh, and a number of changes from the Septuagint, and the most prominent of which is the addition of the word victory instead of the word forever. Before a charge is brought against Paul for his non-contextual use of the Old Testament, we should be reminded that Isaiah... Uh, And Isaiah's context proclaims the complete victory of God on the great day of salvation. On that day of Christ's resurrection and on that day of our resurrection, when with the trumpet resounding and with the twinkling of the eye, when all things will be changed, death will be defeated forever. It's surely a sign of the victory of God over all things associated with the fallen condition. So here, heaven is no longer characterized by death, the very thing we live in fear of, but it's characterized by life eternal, a victory over death, a reversal of the condemnation that we have received. But it's not only about overcoming human limitations, overcoming death, it's no longer characterized by sin, but victory over it. 
as verse 15, 56 and 57 records, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Characterized by sin, but now overcoming it. Paul already described this scene in Romans chapter 6 and verse and chapter 7. He told us that not only are we saved by grace, we are continued to be sanctified by grace. That sin has no longer a mastery and dominion over us. It's no longer reigning over us, but now we are slaves of righteousness. That chapter 7 goes on to argue the law, which is good, is always overpowered by sin. Even the very thing that is good cannot stand against the power of sin. Therefore, we must lean upon grace, not upon the law for our sanctification. And here he repeats the notion here, simply by pointing out in heaven, sin no longer exists. It's a place without sin. We are no longer mastered by it. And in fact, it's a place where we can proclaim our victory. Sin no longer has mastery over us. And the result of sin, death, no longer has mastery over us. So confident is Paul, he taunts death. Where, O death, is thy sting? Where, O death, is thy dominion? Where, O death, is thy 